you little people that are seven to nine. I'm your Sunday school teacher this morning, and we get to stay in this room right here together. It's a blessing to, to have you guys with us this morning. And as the children head out, I also want to remind you that today's the, the last day to sign up for VBS. So if you're wanting to sign up your kids for that, that's coming up here pretty quick in a couple of weeks. So you can sign up your kids for that. This is the last day. And also after the service today is the Messiah practice. That's going to be at 1245. So if you're a part of that, Messiah practice is at 1245. We're going to be turning to John 316 this morning. A little over three years ago, I preached from this pulpit here in April in the year that shall not be named (laughs) to a room that was almost empty and the audience was mostly turkey who were looking at themselves in the reflection of the doors, plus a guy who was running by in his pink shorts and shoes only. Not exactly the audience I would have hoped for. And I've been eager to return to this text because I want to preach it to you. And I've wanted to come back to this text because I've had a a personal eagerness to behold greater glories in the gospel of God and to grow in the love of God. And I've been eager to return to this text because we need it. Uh, We need to hear the gospel even as Christians. I thought about this as I read Romans 1.15 recently where Paul was writing to Christians and he said, I am eager to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He was eager to preach the gospel to believers because he understood that's not the place where we just find our first love but our only love. The, the gospel is not just our entrance into faith, but it's the life in which we stand. So for the glory of God and for the good of our souls, I, I'm eager to preach the gospel to us who are at Foothill Christian Fellowship. And with that, I would like to begin with prayer. God of our salvation, I pray that you would show us anew the wonders of gospel grace and Calvary love. I pray that you would help me to preach the gospel better than I've ever preached it, that I would preach your heart with all my heart, and that you would instruct the hearts of the living among us with a greater joy and more constant remembrance of this gospel we've received. Help us not just to know about the gospel, but to enjoy its life-transforming experience day to day. Pray that you would also instruct the hearts of the dead among us. Tell them to live, and they will live. Grant them repentance and belief as you command. And teach us all about your love that gives his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And let this sermon bear more fruit for the glory of your name than any other I've ever preached. And I pray that you would take my weak prayers and use them to display your strength and take my insufficiency to minister your word and display your might. And take a passage that's so familiar to us and open our eyes again to its profundity like the days when we 
first believed. Do more than we could ever ask or imagine with our fellowship today because it's like you to do things like that. Amen. In the 19th century, there was a wild young man named Henry Morehouse who by the age of 16 was a gambler, a gang leader, and a thief. But during the revival of 1859, Henry was converted to Jesus. And soon after he was converted, he was heard preaching the gospel with all his heart. And his favorite text to preach was John 3.16. One day in Ireland in 1867, he met the far-famed world evangelist D.L. Moody. And Henry had the nerve to invite himself to come to Chicago and preach in Moody's church for him. And sometime later, Moody returned home from a trip and learned that Morehouse, who had invited himself, had just shown up and started preaching. And he was drawing great crowds to himself. And Moody's wife explained to her husband, D.L., that Morehouse has preached two sermons from John 3.16, and I think that you will like him, although he preached a little bit different than what you do. He asked his wife, well, how is that? Well, he tells sinners that God loves them. Moody wasn't so sure about that. But that evening, he went to hear Morehouse preach, and the young man stood up from the pulpit and said, if you will turn to the third chapter of John in the 16th verse, you will find my text. And Moody later recalled from that message that Morehouse preached a most extraordinary sermon from that verse. I never knew up to that time that God loved us so much. This heart of mine began to thaw out, and I could not keep back the tears. It was like news from a far country. I just drank it in. Night after night, Morehouse preached from John 3.16, and it it had a life-changing effect on D.L. Moody. Moody says, I have never forgotten those nights. I have preached a different gospel since, and I have had more power with God and man since then. Later in life, when Morehouse fell ill and was on his deathbed, his undying love for the truth of John 3.16 remained aflame, and he looked up and he told his friends, if it were the Lord's will to raise me again, I should like to preach from that text, God so loved the world. Well, saints at FCF, today, if you will turn to the third chapter of John in verses 16 to 18, you will find my text. It is a new birth text, a text to be loved and lived, and it is a deathbed text as well as everything in between and beyond. And though you may be very familiar with it, may God help us to hear it afresh. So listen to these words from the mouth of Jesus Christ to the Jewish Pharisee named Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. 
He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In this text, many of the weightiest realities that mankind could ever ponder are found in these few words, God, love, the world, the Son of God, death forever, life forever, and a gift for whoever. Today in this passage, we will together behold how God out of love gave the greatest gift of His only Son so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And in this passage, God gives you three reasons why you should believe in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul. The first reason is the love of God. The second reason is the Son of God. And the third reason is the wrath of God. The reasons that you should believe in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul is the love of God, the Son of God, and the wrath of God. This idea of love is very much misunderstood by our culture. They can only see love as an expression of self-interest, a way to serve self. Love is ultimately self-love. It's understood as getting something rather than giving something. This is seen in how people are more likely to say, I love you when they get something from you rather than when they give something to you. But love rightly understood is the opposite of that. Biblical love lacks self-interest. It's eager to sacrifice for others. It's not focused on self and what one could get for themselves, but what they can give to others. Love doesn't seek its own. It doesn't manipulate others to sacrifice for them. Love does not get, it gives. And you can put that on your next Valentine's Day card if you so choose. Love gives. Look at the text that's before us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. What is it that love does? Love gives. Often when you read the word love in the Bible, you're about to either read the word or the concept of giving. Consider these other examples. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by, the, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Or Ephesians 5, 2, therefore we ought to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And a little further in that chapter, Ephesians 5, 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. The focus of love is defined by God's Word in the most simple terms is this, love gives. The inspired text before us today tells us, God so loved the world. And this was not a love that God later developed. As Scripture teaches, God is love. God is and will always 
perfectly, unchangeably be love. He didn't create people in order to be able to love. He simply is love. And God is able to love because love is eternally shared between each member of the Trinity, even before the foundation of the world and before all of creation. Think about what Jesus prayed in John 17, 24. He prayed, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Only Christianity has a God of love because only Christianity has a triune God in whom love eternally exists between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Apart from the only true God, you can only have a lesser God with whom you have to earn it somehow. This is why every false religion presents a God with whom you have to earn love because they don't have a God in whom love is eternally shared between three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. John 3.16 tells us also what God's love was set on specifically here and that God so loved the world. The world here is a reference to humanity in general. The word world refers to the vast ocean of sinful humanity, whereas the words whoever believes refers to a smaller portion within that ocean. And here, the Holy Spirit teaches us that there's only two kinds of people in the world, the whoever believes and the already judged. There is only the believing and the unbelieving. And we read here that God has the greatest of gifts to give to whoever believes. It says in verse 16 also that He gave His only Son, His only begotten Son or only unique Son. And the gift of God first surpasses any gift that any mere human could ever give. God's gift is His only unique Son of whom John wrote in chapter 1 saying that He existed eternally with God the Father before the creation of all things. It says, even all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He testifies that God's Son is the light of the world, that He's truly God become truly man, that He's the fullness of grace and truth, that He is the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ whom John the Baptist announced. And in the context of John chapter 3, He's the incarnate Savior dialoguing with the Pharisee Nicodemus, telling him the greatest truth that human ears could ever hear. And this Nicodemus was very familiar with the Scriptures, trained as a premier Jewish religious leader. But familiarity with the Scriptures has never saved anybody, only the Son of God opening blind eyes. But at this point, Nicodemus had yet been given the spiritual eyes to see Christ in what Moses wrote, and yet given the spiritual ears to hear them, because what he needed was to be born again. 
He needed more than just knowing that God loved the world. He needed to be born, a God with, born again with that love in his heart, producing a love for God. A striking statement at the end of the letter of 1 Corinthians that's stuck with me for many years is how Paul comes to the end of that letter and he says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed, Maranatha. Well, what about that kind and respectable young man or young lady within the congregation if they don't love the Lord but they have all sorts of kindness about them? Are they to be accursed? What about that gray-haired saint who has been here for so long? Does familiarity with Scripture mean that you have eternal life? Does being around Jesus' family mean that you've been born into it? The question here is, do you love Him? Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you love Him obviously, devotedly, unquestionably? What is the thing that you can't seem to stop thinking about and talking about? It's there in your thoughts and your speech that you find what you truly love, and you find there either a dead idol or the living Christ. Are you familiar with Jesus, just familiar with Him, or do you love Him? Do you just hang around those who love Him, or do you truly love Him? Think for a moment about what do you do when you find a, a restaurant that you really enjoy? You have to tell people about it, and you could care less how they might respond to you because you are certain that it will be good for them if they just try it. But what if they say, I don't think I'd like to go there. I don't think that I like that kind of food. You tell them, no, but you have to try it. <laughs> We're going to go together tomorrow. Do you love Jesus more than your favorite restaurant? So much that it overcomes any fear of man or any rejection that you might get from him. You could care less what they might say about you inviting them to come and see Jesus because you know it will be good for them. You have so much confidence in that that if they taste the Lord's kindness, that they will come to know that it is good. They must come to see Him with you. Christian, what are you known for? Are you known for merely being a church attender or for one who has an undying love for Christ who loved you first and gave Himself for you? And right now as you hear Christ being preached to you, what's going on in your head do you think, well, yeah, I know that. I know this stuff. I know John 3.16. Or is there something in your heart where it's rejoicing and you're saying, yes, I love that old, old story. It will be my theme and glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and His love. Is there something in you where you just want to hear about Him every time you gather with the church on Sunday and you won't be satisfied until you do? Is it your heart's desire to, to be with Him, to enjoy Him and fellowship with the living God? 
Or is the sight of him and his word no more enjoyable to you than an ocean sunset to a blind man, or the sound of a soaring symphony to a deaf man? Have you been born again into a relationship where you love to see and hear of Jesus as he reveals himself through his word and through the fellowship of the saints where you can see him at work in the lives of others? to see Him as you seek to obey Him and honor Him because you're so amazed at the fact that He would give His life for you that you want to give all of your life for Him in gratitude. Are you alive in Him and dead to sin? Has the life of knowing and enjoying God been born inside of your soul or is it just going on in people around you? Has the good news of Jesus Christ dead, buried, and raised from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures become good news for you and not just other people? And do you think that it's the best news? Not just news, but the best news. It's the best thing that you know. And is there any sense of beauty and awe when you think about the love of God, that you can just hear that phrase, the love of God, and sit back and meditate on His mercies to you throughout the years of your life? Do you have a pulse for the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, might I suggest that you go to a funeral and a birthday? You need to go to the funeral of you and the birthday of being a new creation with new life in Jesus Christ It's the only birthday party where the gift comes first. And who is it that can have this great gift of God's Son according to the Scriptures? Well, the text says the great gift of God's Son is for whoever believes in Him. Let me ask you here, are you ungodly? Are you ungodly? If not, I'm sorry to say that you can't partake of the great gift of the Son of God because Romans 5, 6 says, Christ died for the ungodly. Are you a sinner in desperate need of a divine physician? If not, I regret to inform you that Jesus Himself said, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." Are you an ungodly sinner? If so, I have good news for you. You qualify as the only kind of person that Jesus saves. Romans 5.8 is a cross-reference to John 3.16. It says, but God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You must believe that you are what He says you are, and that the only way to be saved is to believe in Him. Now, notice that this text says, whoever believes in Him, not whoever believes in whatever they think about Him. They must believe in Him as He is revealed in the Scripture, nothing more, nothing less. And there are not many different ways to eternal life, and each person gets to decide for themselves. There is only one true Jesus. 
He is the only way, and there isn't another. In John chapter 10, Jesus Himself says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. And we know that it's only criminals who try to enter the house the wrong way. Don't be deceived by the voices that say that there are many ways or other ways. They will indeed leave you, lead you into the presence of God, but you will find that you didn't enter your father's house, but a house of judgment. Jesus teaches later in John 10 that his sheep hear his voice, which raises the question for us personally, do you hear his voice? Do you hear him today calling you to the only way to enter? Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. If you can hear these words this day, then enter the good shepherd's sheepfold and be saved. The good news for you today is that Jesus is the only way of salvation, which means you don't need to know every other way. You only need to know the way. You don't need to seek another. Your search is over and rest has been found. He's a sufficient Savior. He doesn't need anything added to His saving work. And to seek any other way is to deny His sufficiency and ability to save. Jesus said of the whoever of His sheep that they will listen to my voice. Are you right now listening to these words from the living Christ? And is your listening proved by the reality of you actually following Him? Listening to Him and following Him are evidence that you are His sheep. Now, you don't believe in order to become a sheep, but you are made a sheep in order to believe by God's grace. All sheep believe. But what about those people who don't believe? Well, this is how Jesus explains why some people don't believe in John 10, 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. And after explaining why some don't believe, Jesus makes this wonderful promise to His sheep. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You see here that the salvation that we learn about in the Scriptures is founded by Jesus Himself, and that it's an invincible salvation that can't be undone, that you will have a salvation in Him where you're unable to be snatched from the keeping God, hand of God Himself, never to perish, which again reminds us of those words in John 3.16 that whoever believes in Him shall not perish. Now, that word perish does not mean cease to exist. 
think about how Jesus spoke of perishing in the last verse of Matthew 25, where He says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Eternal punishment is what He's talking about in terms of perishing. And eternal punishment is a place which is as bottomless as the cup of God's wrath itself. Jesus said of that place that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you know what the difference is between those who weep and those who gnash their teeth in hell? I want to give you an example of the voice of the ones who weep which is found in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus from Jesus' teaching in Luke 16, where Jesus taught the rich man, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame." But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime, you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, To him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. While you may be one who would deny eternal punishment today, if you do not repent, you will forever weep in hell like this rich man because you're not able to cross over from there to Tell your other unbelieving family members and warn them that it's real. Eternity is a long time to be wrong. But today, by God's grace, you are hearing about the only way under heaven by which men must be saved. And if you will not believe in hell after hearing about it from the mouth of Jesus Himself, it will be to your own detriment. Now, what about those who gnash their teeth? Well, this word is translated in Acts 7.54 to describe how the Jews responded to Stephen's preaching of Jesus as the Messiah. And as they heard Stephen preaching, it says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they gnashed their teeth at him. For such people, the gate of hell is locked from the inside. They would rather have the worst of punishment than the best of gifts because they love their sin more than the Savior from sin. 
And in such a text as the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7, you see that Jesus' servants are treated just like their Savior, of whom John writes in 111, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. How many of you have tried to bring the gospel to your own, your own family and friends, but you found a people who would not receive you, or they were just indifferent or even enraged? What does love do? Love gives, and out of love we deny ourselves, and we lovingly tell them of our Savior's warning of an eternal punishment for those who won't come through the door. And we risk a temporarily uncomfortable conversation to warn them about eternal misery. We follow our Savior and His example when we give up temporary comfort, pleading for people's eternal comfort. And we ought not to look down on rebellious sinners and thinking, well, why don't they just get it? Because such were many of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified and assigned the mission of being an ambassador of the message of reconciliation. Beloved, we have the highest privilege in all of the world in joining the mission of the Son of God and proclaiming salvation to condemned sinners, which reminds us of that second reason I mentioned of believing in Jesus Christ for salvation, which is the Son of God. We see this especially in verse 17 which tells us of the mission of the Son of God who came not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. He did not condemn or judge the world because the people who, who He came to were judged already. What judge sinners need is not more judgment. What they need is salvation. And this salvation, it says it's through Him, and that's it. It's not through Him and you cleaning up your life and trying to do better and trying harder at being better. It's not through getting baptized. It's not through going to church or becoming a member or through saying a certain prayer. It's just through Him, and that's it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because He is so great a gift, nothing needs to be added to His saving work for whoever believes in Him. And Jesus' first coming, He came for salvation and not judgment. Therefore, verse 18 gives us the third reason I mentioned for believing in Jesus for salvation, which is the wrath of God. It says in the text that whoever believes in Him is not condemned or not judged. Well, how can a condemned sinful person have a right 
relationship with the holy God by believing in Him alone and coming to Him through Him alone. Belief in Him alone, trust in Him alone, faith in Him alone. Believing that Jesus was lifted up on the cross just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness when the Israelites were afflicted by serpents and they found salvation by looking at that which afflicted them. Now, in our affliction, we're afflicted with sin, but you know when we look at the cross of Christ, we see the payment for our sin at that cross of salvation. And Jesus was lifted up as Scripture reveals For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Our text speaks of Jesus being lifted up before He was ever actually crucified, because this has always been God's predetermined plan of salvation, even before the foundation of the world. So, even before Christ was crucified, He could teach Nicodemus to look to the cross of Christ, to see the spotless Lamb of God bearing the stain of sin for whoever believes in Him, trusting that He laid down His life to redeem your life, to deliver you from living in sin to living for Him. And more than that, He was raised. On the cross, Jesus paid for our sins, but in the resurrection, He gave us the receipt to let us know payment has been received and it's been paid in full. And if He can raise Himself from the dead, He can raise you from being dead to Him to having life in Him. So look upon the cross where we see the love of God meet the wrath of God on the Son of God crucified for sinners. Verse 18 goes on to say, but whoever does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of his only begotten Son of God. The already judged are no more interested in finding God than a criminal is in finding a cop. They're no more interested in walking into God's presence than a cockroach is in walking into the sunshine. Well, why is that? Because they want to try to hide their evil deeds in darkness lest they be caught and crushed. As you hear these words read to you, do they read something about your own spiritual state before God? Has the Spirit through the Scripture so diagnosed your sinful soul that you realize that you sit in the examination room already sick? Are you one of the already condemned? Well, if you do not believe in the name of the only Son of God, you are. 
In fact, Scripture teaches that you were born condemned. In Romans 5, it explains that sin came into the world when the first man, Adam, sinned, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all men, even you. And Adam's one trespass led to condemnation for all of mankind. Put another way, you were born with a noose around your neck, but Jesus Christ's one act of righteousness leads to justification. It leads to you having a right standing with God. Instead of being counted as condemned, you're counted as righteous in Him because He is the only one who can reconcile sinful man to holy God. And the great gift of Jesus' perfect life is yours if you will believe. The great gift of His sin-canceling death is yours if you will believe. The great gift of His life-changing resurrection power is yours if you will believe. And can you think of anything more loving than what I'm telling you right now? That God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, perhaps you would give your life for a person who you thought was good, but would you give your life for somebody who lived to misrepresent your name, to lie about you, and to mistreat you? Would you give your life for an enemy? Can you think of anything more loving than the truth that Christ died for people like that, people who would misrepresent Him, lie about Him, mistreat Him? My prayer for you is that the words of Romans 5, 6 through 9 would become your own testimony, where you could join Paul saying, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. How could you look at a love like this and not want it? How could you look at a love like this and be indifferent to it, even despise it? Is it perhaps because you think loving you is better and living for your own joys and passions is better? You have some cheap thrills that you want to live in this life, and you think, I'll just ask for forgiveness on a hospital bed. Do you even know if you're going to have such an opportunity? And what makes you think that after living your whole life apart from God, all of a sudden you're going to want to live with Him? What makes you think that you can live like all sorts of things in this world are more enjoyable than God Himself? to spit in His face and then demand that He give you heaven in the name of forgiveness. Now, I'm certain that some people do enter the kingdom on their deathbeds, but 
I'm more concerned that most people leave this life on their deathbeds the same way that they lived it, without God. Don't be so great a fool as to think that you will believe on that day. You need to scratch every other day of, off your calendar and just write, today. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is God's day, and you can be saved today if you will believe. But for others, perhaps, it's not that you're uninterested or unfeeling toward Christ. You just think, I'm too unworthy. I'm too filthy. He could never give me a privilege like that, this privilege of being called His own. Do you think that you're too filthy to come to the Savior who says He can cleanse you? What sin have you committed that God can't forgive? Hebrews 7.25 declares, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. You can be saved because Christ still lives. And your sinfulness never limits His ability to save. His grace is always greater than all the sins of men combined. Are you wearied by trying to be good enough and trying to be worthy enough? Perhaps you need to be reminded that Jesus says to you in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me. All of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Jesus means that with all his heart. He loves to give rest to the weary. He won't refuse you. And he's not looking for you to give him some application with previous job experience and some good references. Uh, he did the job for you, and he's the only reference that you need. And if you want to walk in his rest, then just be on with it. Recognize that he is good, and he's worthy, and that's enough. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, Jesus is drawing from Jeremiah 6, 16, which goes on to say more than what he said from it. I'll read that to you here, Jeremiah 6, 16. Thus says Yahweh, stand by the ways and seek and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. And here's the extra part, but they said, we will not walk in it. Again, we see that there's only two groups of people in the world, those who find rest for their souls and those who say, we will not walk in it. And perhaps you're not the wounded rest seeker, you're just the proud who says, I'm not going to walk in it. Then I have only these words for you, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And you'll have to answer to Him concerning why you refuse the only way to be saved from His coming wrath. To refuse the greatest of gifts is to serve, 
to deserve the greatest of wrath. And if you refuse the great gift of the Son of God and you do not believe in Him, your condemnation is just. So my prayer is that God would give you eyes to see the love of God demonstrated through the Son of God who saves from the wrath of God. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord Jesus, what man can truly proclaim forth the greatness of your love and do justice to such a great reality? I pray that through the weakness of preaching, you would show yourself strong to save sinners. I pray you would also show your great glory in reminding us who have been saved of this great message that it's not something that's proclaimed just to the lost, but even to us to inflame our hearts with a love toward the good deposit which you have entrusted us with, that the gospel is not just the message of how we enter into faith, but it is how we continue to live in that faith. It's not just information, it's life, it's everything. We thank you for Calvary love. We thank you for the sacrifice of yourself on our behalf, a cost that we cannot comprehend or even begin to fathom. Give us strength to behold it more regularly and to be transformed by it day to day and to help one another remember of your saving grace so that we would walk with you and for you with a greater love and zeal so that you would receive the glory that you were so worthy to receive from our lives. Thank you. Amen.